good evening or good morning or good afternoon, wherever you may be on this rotating planetary sphere we all inhabit. The only consciousness most people believe in the entire universe. I mean, how absurd is that? I have something very sad I hate to report to you this morning. Last night, a little, uh, little earlier than this time, Art Bell, an old friend of mine, the guy who got me into this chair and doing this every weekend now, uh, he died very unexpectedly. There is going to be an autopsy later this week. The coroner's office and the Nye County Sheriff's Department have nothing to report as yet as to the cause of death. I mean, when this happens to someone that you really know and to whom you've done an awful lot with through life and have touched so many lives together, it, it, it's hard to, to find the words. And tonight we have a show that actually would be kind of right out of Art's playbook because we're going to try to connect some dots between events that happened many years ago and events that happened just last night. Because coincident with Art passing, uh, this nation undertook another military strike, uh, tomahawks and cruise missiles and whatever, at uh, targets in Syria. And there is a lineal connection between our discussion tonight and what happened many, many years ago, which we will get to momentarily. But I, I do want to say a couple words about art before we, we move on. If you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on tonight's banner, and then go to the show items down in Radio with Pictures where it says Richard's Items. There is a story there from the Las Vegas Review Journal, a very good story, which was updated this evening um, at about uh, 4.52, actually late this afternoon. And I'm just going to read you a couple of paragraphs from it because it kind of summarizes uh, what, what I can't really bring myself to talk about tonight in any, in any detail. When he was awake, when most of the country was asleep, cultivating a loyal following while sharing his fascination with the unexplained on his nighttime paranormal-themed show. For the better part of two decades, longtime late-night radio personality Art Bell was his own producer, engineer, and host of his show, Coast to Coast AM. He later launched his own satellite radio program from his Pahrump home after retiring from full-time hosting duties in 2003. On the airwaves, Bell captivated listeners with his fascination for the unexplained, such as UFOs, alien abductions, and crop circles. He died Friday at his home at the age of 72. As he begins his journey on the other side, we take solace in the hope that he is now finding out all the answers to the mysteries he pursued for so many nights with all of us, Coast to Coast said in a statement on Saturday. Coast to Coast was syndicated nationwide on about 500 stations across the United States and Canada in the 1990s before Art left the air in 2002. He broadcast the show from Pahrump's KNYE 95.1 FM, a station he founded. And you can read the rest there on the other side of midnight in Radio with Pictures. Um, it, it's really hard to know how to encapsulate Art's broadcast life and the only thing I can say, which is, I guess, maybe important to say, is that without Art, I would not be on the air tonight. It was Art who, a couple, three years ago, called me up one afternoon, and I think it was April. I think it was uh, maybe two and a half, three years this, this April. And he said, Dick, how would you like to do a show following me on, on Dark Matter? And I had to think about it a long time because I am not and was not, and I don't think I am or will be, a broadcaster, but because he thought it was interesting for me to try this, I kind of tried it, and it's worked out the way we all know it's worked out. Um, I just feel a kind of an emptiness tonight because the guy who got me here, the guy who I had so many interesting discussions with on Coast to Coast on so many pivotal topics, so many things that our society doesn't know are moving in the dark and are going to affect us or already have affected us in a very big way. All those things that we talked about are kind of coming to the fore. And so I guess all I'd, I'd like to say as we close this part of the show before we get to a, the program, which is, again, so what Art would want to talk about tonight 
as we're poised on the brink of something between us and Russia and the Middle East and all of that is um, Art will miss you. And remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. to reach for you, but you have closed your mind. Whatever happened to our love, I wish I understood. It used to be so nice, it used to be so good. So when you hear me, darling, can't you hear me? It's so The love you gave me, nothing else can save me, it's so heavy. When you're gone, how can I even try to go on? When you're gone, no I try, how can I carry on? You seem so far away, though you are standing To our love, it used to be so good. So when you hear me, darling, can't you hear me? It's so nice. The Lord, you gave me nothing else to save me. It's so nice. When you're gone, how can I even try to go on? When you're gone, The show we're doing tonight actually has its roots in, in a very interesting problem that to this day has not been resolved. What happened on 9-11? What really went down? Who were the perpetrators? And have these events rippled forward in time from 2001, from September 9th, 2001, to last night, where the United States once again took military action against a foe, a, um, an antagonist, a situation in the Middle East that, again, has been going on and on and on for far too many years with incredible numbers of people killed and millions set in migration to other countries, the ripple effects politically spanning you know, the entire Middle East across Europe, the relationships between superpowers, everything has been affected by what, what happened on that morning on 9-11. So this morning, completely apropos of nothing except that it was a show that needed to be done because there, is, there have been new developments, and we're going to talk in great detail tonight about those new developments. 
this show has been planned a long time before the military strike in Syria, which has preoccupied our attention and all the attention of all the networks for the last uh, 24 hours. So without any further ado, let me introduce, we have a very complicated show. We have five different guests representing very interesting perspectives on 9-11, degrees of involvement and participation in moving the situation forward so there is closure, so there's some kind of ultimate answer to what happened, which basically changed the world. And that's the reason we're doing the show. And it's the kind of show that Art did many, many times. I mean, one of the things that I would take disagreement with in that um, Las Vegas newspaper article is the concept in his obituary of paranormal. I hate the term paranormal. There is normal, period. Anything that happens is normal. Anything that takes place, anything we can investigate, anything we can bring our science and technology and mind to, to figure out is not paranormal. It's normal. What Art did was to expand the concept of normal to where he would take in things and discuss things and treat seriously subjects that had been kept in the dark in the shadows. Well, one of those subjects, which has been kept in the dark far too long, is what really happened on 9-11. And so I guess it's fitting that we do a show on potential answers and the mechanisms to reach answers on this um, night after the death of my friend Art. So let me introduce our panel tonight. Mick Harrison, Esquire, is Executive Director of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, as well as a public interest lawyer in private practice. Attorney Harrison has 25 years of experience litigating whistleblower protection lawsuits and environmental protection citizen suits nationwide. For those 25 years, Attorney Harrison has represented and assisted citizen groups and whistleblowers in their efforts to expose violations of law and misconduct by government and corporate officials. Attorney Harrison has also litigated Freedom of Information Act cases, False Claims Act cases, and class action cases for workers' rights. Attorney Harrison's former clients include the Sierra Club, Greenpeace, Vietnam Veterans Organizations, and the Chemical Weapons Working Group, all of which are national nonprofit organizations. David R. Meiswinkle, Esquire, is a criminal defense attorney, retired police officer of 23 years, and a former U.S. Army participant. His act activism and municipal corruption brought federal authorities into New Brunswick, New Jersey, which led to major criminal investigation, arrests, indictments, and conviction of prominent local politicians. Two years ago, David and his Quantum Matrix radio co-host, Pamela Senzi, trekked 440 miles, 47 days, to honor those who died from 9-11, their families, and to restore the Constitution. They walked from Shanksville area in Pennsylvania, where United Flight 93 crashed, camping and filming to Washington, D.C., and the Pentagon, talking to those they met along the way about 9-11. They then headed north on the highways to Baltimore, Delaware, Philadelphia, New Jersey, and crossed the George Washington Bridge into Manhattan, down to Ground Zero and the Survivor's Tree. They are doing a movie of their trek called Truth Walk. The second part is currently under production. Julio Gomez Esquire has practiced civil rights and commercial litigation in diverse matters, including discrimination, education, police excessive force, and fraud. Representation of indigenous Ecuadorians against Chevron regarding claims of fraud arising from environmental damages from oil drilling in the Amazon was one of his major cases. Julio Gomez has been practicing for 20 years. Barbara Honiger, MS, a member of the Grand Jury Petition Drafting Committee, has served as White House Policy Analyst, Director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice, and from 1995 to 2001 was Senior Military Affairs Journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, the premier science, technology, and national security affairs graduate research university of the Department of Defense. 
a leading researcher, author, and documentarian, and public speaker on the events of September 11th. She played a key role in archiving the declassification, I'm sorry, achieving the declassification and release of the 28 pages, which led to the passage of the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act that has enabled the lawsuits of thousands of 9-11 victims, family members, to finally move forward in the courts. Bob McElvain is father of 9-11 victim Bobby McElvain, who was born in Philadelphia, grew up in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, where he still lives with his wife, Helen. Bob graduated from East Stroudsburg University with a major in political science. He's a retired teacher and businessman and has one surviving son, Jeff, a biology teacher and coach in New Jersey. There is more to these bios if you go to the other side of midnight.com and click on tonight's graphic for tonight's show. But that will kind of do to open our evening. I think, Barbara, I'd like to begin with you since you've done many programs on this air on 9-11. And this probably is one of the more important ones because there have been major new developments apropos eerily of what happened yesterday vis-a-vis Syria. So where do we begin? Well, first off, thank you so much, Richard, and your producer, your wonderful producer, Kinthea, for these amazing three hours. Um, You have given us a platform to go worldwide, and we greatly appreciate it. I would start with the famous quote from the well-known anthropologist, now deceased, Margaret Mead. And that famous quote that I'm sure all your listeners know, but just in case, quote, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has, unquote. And I just want everyone around the world to know that tonight you are listening to five people who are part of that very thoughtful group of committed citizens who have committed themselves to changing the world, to bring to the world and to legal accountability the truth about who really attacked our country on 9-11. And I'll just close before going to Executive Director of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry and their Director of Litigation, Mick Harrison, in a moment. I just would like to say that because of this amazing serendipity, the synchronicity, that this program was planned a long time ago, relatively speaking, long before the attack on Syria. People need to understand that exactly a year before 9-11, the Project for New American Century published a document calling for a new Pearl Harbor. That new Pearl Harbor was the attack of 9-11 exactly a year later. And that document called for the overturning of the regimes in seven Middle Eastern and and Western Asian countries, including Syria. This is just the pretext for yet another 9-11 war based upon the lie of who attacked our country on 9-11. And the last domino to fall, according to their call, on September 11, 2000, the year before the attacks of 9-11, is Iran. And we know that John Bolton has just become a radical anti-Iran, let's bomb Syria and let's bomb Iran, has just become the national security, the new national security advisor to President Trump just before this attack. So if it hadn't have been this pretext, it would have been another one. This is just part of the pre-9-11 plan to roll down the regimes of seven countries, including Syria. So um, I'm going to go into the background now, and um, you're going to hear from our wonderful Director of Litigation and Executive Director of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, of which I have had the great honor of working on the grand jury petition that he's going to tell you about. So thank you. Thank you. Okay, I guess, Mick, we're going to go to you first. And what I'd like to do is to have kind of like a brief opening statement, how you got into this, why you think it's important. I want each of you to on the panel to kind of address that, and then we'll drill down deeper and we'll go into more substantive details as the as the morning progresses. So Mick, you're up at bat. Thank you, sir. And I appreciate as well your having us for 
the program. It's a great opportunity for us. Uh, the Warriors Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, of which I am executive director, is a nonprofit, and we have a mission of transparency and accountability regarding the events of 9-11, the events leading to 9-11, and the events that have transpired after 9-11, which, uh, which you and Barbara have been making reference to. I should note that at the moment, our mission is limited to um, inquiry into 9-11 per se. We haven't taken on the broader task of um, explaining, uh, for example, uh, what's happening in Syria and a number of other areas that have transpired since, um, but we may eventually get into those areas. So to the extent that one of our uh, speakers tonight, uh, as Barbara did, gets into those other areas, uh, please consider them speaking um, for themselves individually, and that will be true for me as well. Um, but when we start talking about our uh, recently filed petition to the Department of Justice uh, seeking a grand jury investigation, uh, we will then be talking officially for the Lawyers Committee. Uh, in terms of how I got into this uh, investigation of what happened on 9-11, uh, it was, um, I guess, serendipity. Um, I'm a public interest lawyer, as you mentioned. My home is Bloomington, Indiana. And I walked into um, one of the offices I work with for uh, force protection. And the folks sitting around the table there said something about bombs being placed in the buildings. And I said, what, what in the world were you talking about? And this was a few years after 9-11. I had no clue at that time. And they were talking about uh, David Ray Griffin, Professor David Ray Griffin, and his um, expose uh, early on of evidence of use of explosives in the World Trade Center on 9-11, which has since become the subject of our petition we filed a couple of days ago. So um, I was sort of... Uh, shocked, I guess would be the best word, and uh, asked them you know, what evidence they had for this. And uh, as it happened, one of the chemists who'd been investigating this, a whistleblower on 9-11, Kevin Ryan, who has since published some important works on the question, uh, happened to be living in my hometown of Bloomington, Indiana at the time he was working there. He worked for Underwriters Laboratories. And um, Kevin had raised questions with his superiors at Underwriters about why uh, those buildings, uh, Trade Center 1, 2, and 7, had collapsed on 9-11, if the steel used to construct them had been properly certified. And as it turns out, Underwriter Laboratories is the company that had certified the steel used to build the Trade Centers. Some people don't know that. And so he eventually persisted in getting an answer from his superiors all the way up to the president of the company. And ultimately the answer was yes, steel was properly certified and nothing wrong with the steel. Uh, unfortunately for Kevin, uh, he still got fired for having sort of internally blown the whistle, but that's um, the short version, uh, Richard, on how I got involved and I've been investigating the matter since and got involved with the lawyers committee a couple of years ago and have been assisting them on a, a almost full time, but nonetheless voluntary capacity since then. Okay, thank you so much. Well, we'll come back to you because I want to go briefly through everybody and how they got involved. Julio, why don't we go to you next, okay? Julio Gomez, unmuting helps. Yes, I'm on. Thank you very much, Richard, for this opportunity. Well, Richard, um, I'm sort of a latecomer to the issue and the matter. I suppose around uh, two or three years ago, I was doing research on a variety of topics. And I happened to stumble across uh, the website of architects and engineers. And I remember vividly going through uh, the material that Richard Gage and his colleagues have put together um, and just being startled by what I was seeing. Uh, as an attorney, uh, my training uh, has really been about uh, collecting the facts and interviewing witnesses and many times finding experts to testify on behalf of my clients. 
um, where the entire story is put together by a totality of evidence, uh, be it um, circumstantial or otherwise. And the more I studied uh, Richard's website and the evidence he had, the more concerned I became about what I had at the, up to that point understood to be the situation. And I began to do more research. And as I did, I came to the conclusion that what I had been told um, was simply incorrect or implausible. And that led me to find a way to contribute uh, in my area of expertise, which is the law. And I came across the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, which is a group of individuals, all volunteers, who I admire very much, who have an awful amount of expertise and wisdom. And I'm glad that I was able to join their group and contribute to the petition that was filed this past week. Mm, super. Okay. We'll come back to you, Julio. Um, David uh, Meiswinkel, I think uh, we have just time to squeeze you in, as they used to say, before the break. How did you get involved and what has been your contribution to the Lawyers Committee? Sure, Richard. Uh, again, thank you for having us here and thank you for that uh, tribute to Art Bell. He was a national treasure. Uh, I look at the, the 9-11 situation uh, originally as a, a police officer of 23 years. And uh, the first thing that you're uh, taught in the academy is to preserve the crime scene, which was exactly what wasn't done. And key evidence such as the uh, steel, the iron, uh, which could tell you a lot about what happened there, uh, was carted away very quickly, cut up and shipped overseas. So it disappeared a lot of the evidence. I looked at 9-11 as a, uh, a pattern that I'd seen since I was a young person. It, it developed, uh, I'd seen, at least in my opinion, from John Kennedy to his brother, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King. I was aware of uh, Oklahoma bombing and, and looked at it close as a police officer would look at it. I had met Ted Gunderson at a, uh, at a presentation, and I know Ted Gunderson, this is right after, after he had retired from the FBI where he was agent in charge in Los Angeles area, and he had his theories as to what happened uh, in uh, Oklahoma bombing. I'm familiar with the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, the North One, the North Tower. There seemed to be uh, problems there, that uh, there wasn't the honesty there. Of course, uh, living through the Vietnam era, that was a jaded era, and having seen the Gulf of Tonkin, and having seen various patsies, uh, when I saw the 9-11 event as a police officer, I stepped back and looked very closely at it. Uh, two books came out very uh, soon after that in 2002. One was by, I think, Misson Theory, or Theory Misson, and David Icke, as early as 2002, and they questioned the original story. Uh, for a while, I, I just, uh, you know, like everyone else, I went along with it. I, I understand that I don't think Richard Gage knew about it until 2006 when he saw Building 7 come down or, or heard about it and, and ran it by David Ray Griffin, or I guess David Ray Griffin was talking on uh, Guns and Butter, Bonnie Faulkner show. And, uh, and people in California had not even known that a third building, which would be the biggest building in 33 states, 610 feet tall, 47 stories, collapsed, and it wasn't hit by an airplane, which was a stunner. And uh, I uh, followed, uh, at that time, I actually, I didn't join uh, architects and engineers. I didn't know they existed until about 2011, the 10th anniversary, but I ran for office, uh, being frustrated and knowing that I didn't have a chance, but I, I challenged and I ran against Chris Christie, actually, as, one of, as an independent. And I was the only candidate at that time to stress the 9-11 uh, connection in New Jersey having to do with the, uh, the, uh, this, the structures that was taken over there, the steel, and he had been a U.S. attorney at that time. And uh, I called for a new 9-11 investigation at that time. The next year, 2010, when I ran for Congress against Chris Smith. David, I if we can hold it there, we're coming up to a break. We'll return to the other side of midnight in my 9-11 panel after these few words. We'll be right back.
You're listening to the first hour of The Other Side of Midnight. Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit theothersideofmidnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. The Kinthea, our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the open hailing frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, If you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. Welcome back on this Saturday night, a kind of a sad Saturday night because uh, my friend died yesterday and I don't really know how to, how to talk about it. You're on the other side of midnight and my guests tonight are, I have five really brilliant panelists who are going to enlighten you on what, uh, what we're trying to do in terms of 9-11, to bring past and future together and to figure out how it is we got onto this track of history anyway. I mean, you can all look back now. Everyone can look back and say something radically wrong happened, which caused history to basically veer in a direction we do not want it to continue. And what happened last night vis-a-vis Syria is a direct lineal connection to what happened many, many years ago on 9-11. 
I'd like to turn now to Bob uh, McIlvain. Um, is it McIlvain or McIlvaney, Robert? Uh, McIlvain. McIlvain. And yeah. uh, talk about your son, because of all the panelists, of course, you have the closest connection. Bobby was there on that day. And uh, talk a little bit about who he was and what he was doing and how you're trying to get at the truth, basically, in honor of, of him. Well, <laughs> It could be it could be a three hour show just on that, but uh, well, Bobby was uh, he, he was born and raised in Orland, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia, Montgomery County, and uh, just uh, just a phenomenal person, phenomenal student. He uh, graduated high school. He's a ball player. Played basketball and baseball in high school. Went to Upper Dunham High School, and went on to Princeton. Just wasn't good enough to play on their basketball team, but. He, you know, he played all through his college years, but uh, he was a major uh, uh, in English and a minor in African-American studies. He was a very progressive kid. He worked for the progressive uh, newspaper in Princeton, and he just had a phenomenal four years. It was a phenomenal four years for our whole family, the fact that we could go up to Princeton. You know, my wife and myself were uh, uh, you know, state school graduates. My wife from Westchester, I'm East Strasburg. And uh, so for us just to go to Princeton and think that, geez, we could have maybe gone here sometime, you know. But anyway, I graduated from Princeton and immediately went up to uh, New York City. So graduated in 97. And he wanted to be a writer, a very extremely gifted writer. And uh, but he can't make money writing. So he went to. (laughs) Yes, uh, I know that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's really that's I mean, you know, he did. He was on two books. He was writing two books, you know, and very involved in racism. And his one book, uh, my wife's from Chester, and he was he was writing a book about uh, subliminal racism in Chester, and, and of course throughout the country, but using Chester as an example. So he was doing nonfiction as opposed to fiction. Yeah. And um, so anyway, he had to get a job, and of course he started working at you know, up in New York, worked work various jobs, uh, and uh, in fact. Uh, Let's see. He was working for I forget what company, but I don't know if you remember Real Boys, the the book. Mm, doesn't ring ring well, any Anyway, he 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 did such a good job that he became the number one bestseller. And he was on Oprah Winfrey's show. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I, I forget it. So many years ago. But anyway, finally he got a job at uh, Merrill Lynch. He decided to go to Merrill Lynch, and he was going to go to graduate school, and he, and he was going to become a writer. I mean, that's the only thing he wanted, but again, you know, he had to work. So he finally got a job at Merrill Lynch. It was only like uh, less than a month before 9-11. And his job was assistant vice president of media relations. What that entailed, and no one at Merrill Lynch was ever, ever able to tell me, but they wanted him just to work because he was such a great writer. They had, he had done some uh, work for Merrill Lynch, you know, through a company he was with at one time. And they just loved such writing so much that they just hired him to be assistant vice president. And again, they came to find that. But on that morning, he lived in an apartment with his roommate from college. So they went through all college and got uh, both got jobs and moved up to uh, 66 between first and second. So he took the subway down uh, to ground zero. And Merrill Lynch was across the street. His office was across the street, uh, across uh, West Street. And on that day, there was supposed to be a conference on the 106th floor. And of course, that's the only thing we knew at the time. But uh, of course, everybody was watching the news on that morning. But my story, which took me years to finally develop this, this story, uh, he got off the subway, headed towards uh, the tower. And I, everyone assumed that he was going to the 106th floor. But of course, no one knows for sure. And he had a cell phone with him and, um, well, 9-11 happened. And of course, it, immediately we had no clue what happened. We called him, you know, we must've called him a hundred times. And of course, everyone at Merrill Lynch was calling him. And for years, I really never did find out exactly what happened because at that time, you're just in total shock. And, uh, you know, just you're just trying to get through that first year. So I, I joined Peaceful Tomorrow as a group that of 9-11 family members that wanted peace. Uh, 
And my thing was that I just couldn't believe they went to war just because of 9-11. It was a criminal criminal act. And to me, you know, it was, it was a crime. And I just couldn't, I just didn't understand why we were going to war. So I spent, you know, I just spent a couple of years just speaking, talking around the world, speaking and talking in high schools and colleges and telling people that uh, war is not necessary. And I felt good about it. And I felt good being part of this group called Peaceful uh, 9-11 Family for Peaceful Tomorrows. And um, so I went with that. And, well, I, I, want, you know, I don't know if you want me to go further in the story because, but that's basically, and the main thing about Bobby, and I really love to tell this, that if you talk to Bobby, if he was on the phone with you now, he would spend the whole time talking about you. You never knew. <laughs> Sorry. But he was a brilliant, brilliant person. And you would never, you know, if you talked to him, you, you, he probably would never tell you he went to Princeton. He would just constantly ask you, you know, about your life. And that's the type of person he was. And he'd love to put everything down on paper. And he was just a habitual writer. He just... We have journals after journals, and these journals we have about him and what he thought about life and so forth and so on. So he was really a beautiful person. Well, I'm very honored that you're on the show tonight, and I must tell you that uh, Bobby is making a contribution because I have a feeling that this legal effort now set in motion is going to change the curve again, going back to what Barbara said uh, about, you know, only takes a few committed people to change history because that's the only thing that's ever changed history is a few committed people. So, uh, Bob, thanks for being here and being committed to changing history back in the positive direction. Um, Mick, I think I want to come to you again because I want to talk about this petition because those of us who are not lawyers, everybody raise your hand who's not a lawyer, okay? Um, it seems a little mystifying to me that it's now 2018 these events happened in 2001. Why has it taken decades, literally decades, to assemble a petition for a grand jury under the law that may actually make a difference? Pretty good question, Richard. Um, the, the first answer is that the Department of Justice should have done the grand jury proceedings in 2001, 2002, every year thereafter. Uh, it's unusual, I would say rare, for a, a citizen or a citizen group to have to initiate a grand jury proceeding. Most people in this country don't understand they have the right to do that. This petition spelled out what that right is. It's pursuant to both the Constitution and a federal statute, <clears throat> excuse me, federal statute, uh, Title 18 of the U.S. Code, Section 3332A says that if a uh, U.S. attorney is given a report of a crime uh, by anyone, uh, that that uh, report and evidence submitted must, and I emphasize the word must, uh, be passed on to a federal special grand jury. It is a, a duty created by federal statute that's non-discretionary. Um, now, you know, I think if, if uh, folks who were active early in the 9-11 truth movement, and I don't count myself among those early folks who realized that there was a problem, I came on a few years later, but I think uh, had they been uh, informed of this right, we probably would have seen this action earlier. Uh, most of the folks who got involved early were not lawyers. Uh, Dr. David Ray Griffin, I think, is a Professor of Theology, uh, Kevin Ryan is a chemist, um, Professor Stephen Jones is a physicist, and we could go down the list. So I think it took a group of lawyers getting involved, uh, working with the scientists, which we have been doing very closely with architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, and we've been relying heavily on the work of a number of these uh, independent scientists as well. And it took, I think, uh, I guess the merging of science and law to put the pieces together to see not only what happened, but what could be done about it. So the filing of this petition, a citizen's petition in essence, could have been done any time after 9-11, and it was not done because of what, ignorance of the law? 
Well, I can't speak for everyone else. You know, I can only tell you my own answer. Um, I've never done a petition like this myself in 25 years of public interest legal work. And I'm a civil uh, attorney. I do civil lawsuits, as you noted, for whistleblowers and environmental groups. I don't do criminal law. This is an area of criminal law. So the short answer is uh, we didn't really have criminal law experts getting involved. Hmm. And it took uh, a lawyer outside of that area, which would be me and my colleagues, uh, to just do our homework and realize that there was an option under the criminal law that no one was looking at. See, this is an area of, of the Constitution that I find so stunning, where something of this magnitude, which literally has changed history, is in the hands of ordinary people, ultimately, under the U.S. Code. And now I want to go to, to Julio Gomez, because, Julio, this is your expertise, the role of the grand jury. Tell people, kind of, you know, tell us, tell me, how the role of the grand jury here could be so critical in opening up this discussion and bringing this incredibly important new evidence to, to a legal resolution. Well, Richard, basically the role that a grand jury plays in our system is to determine one very important question. And that question is whether there is probable cause to bring charges or bring an indictment against an individual or a set of individuals for a violation of a crime. Um, so the grand jury exists basically as the group of citizens in our democracy uh, who sit there and sift through evidence and then make the determination whether someone will have to sit and face a charge. Uh, it is a system that exists to give that power to the public citizenry because it is our understanding that it is the public that brings the charge against the person. Um, often uh, people, obviously a prosecutor has discretion on whether to proceed on an indictment, but the idea that the public or your peers uh, stand on the evidence and weigh it and determine that someone should be brought to a trial is a central uh, theme of our legal system. Uh, it is based on the value that we should be judged by others like us. And so not only do grand juries serve to indict us, uh, but then uh, a petite jury, a group made of citizens like ourselves, actually will listen to the evidence and decide whether the standards have been met to find someone guilty or not guilty. That's the way the process works. That's the way it should always work. Um, here, what we have is an opportunity for a very courageous U.S. attorney to take the evidence that we have presented in this petition. Well, but, and, and is, let me stop you there. Why would the U.S. attorney in the Southern District in New York, why would he have to be courageous? Wouldn't he just have to follow the law? Well, it takes courage in this particular instance, Richard, because there is an official story. There have been a decade, a decade or more, right, of a whole host of fact-finding, quote-unquote, that has taken place by various agencies, which have purported to determine what happened on 9-11. The grand jury petition challenges that to its core. And it challenges it because it presents what is very incontrovertible evidence of the existence of explosives used to bring down the buildings at the World Trade Center. And so, though you might say, or you might think, well, you're just following the law, and we believe based on our interpretation of the law that there is no discretion, I think a U.S. attorney still has to consider the fact that in making the decision to present the evidence that being presented challenges what the rest of the establishment thinks happened that day and has been telling the public happened that day. And I think that takes courage. I think it takes commitment to the Constitution as opposed to allegiance to personal or political um, expediency. Hmm. Uh, and, that's, and that's, I think, very important. So we are hoping that 
in the U.S. Attorney's Office, we have people like that serving us, people who are prepared to uphold their commitment to the Constitution and to the values of our country and give public citizens sitting on a grand jury an opportunity to consider the evidence thoroughly and to take the investigation further. Well, it's very interesting that you should mention this has been now petitioned of the uh, of the Southern District, the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District, because that specific U.S. Attorney just has tackled a major case vis-a-vis the President of the United States' personal attorney. Now, I presume that took some courage. So if courage, Dorothy, is part of the equation, maybe this is the right guy. I, I want to talk to uh, David here, uh, David Meiswinkle, because one of the things you wanted to talk about tonight is that the Constitution is under attack. And, and again, that's why the filing of this petition is so incredibly timely at so many different levels. Uh, please kind of speak to that. Uh, thank you, Richard. Uh, not only uh, courage is required, but integrity on the part of the uh, U.S. attorney, uh, because uh, we received the report, the 9-11 Commission report, as was said, the uh, grand jury petition uh, totally contradicts that. It, it mentions things that, uh, many things that were never, ever spoken of. And uh, so people don't know the evidence that is now being presented. But when we talk about the Constitution, uh, we're in a, a post-9-11 era, and it's fairly obvious to all of us, to uh, Edward Snowden, that uh, we're under surveillance 24-7. Uh, there's been a uh, Homeland Security, which didn't exist before, which is now a, like another state of security or enforcement. The National Defense Authorization Act was brought in, which had to do with indefinite detention. You had uh, more strict uh, uh, actions at the uh, airports with the, the TSA. Uh, you had uh, the, uh, the whole challenge, again, with the habeas corpus. You have incredible wars throughout the Middle East. And you have actually a loss of our freedoms in the sense of the amendments, the Fourth Amendment, the First Amendment, uh, the very fabric of what defines us as Americans, I think you can find in the Bill of Rights. And it seems like there's a concerted effort to trash the Bill of Rights and trash the Constitution, whether it's uh, a, a, an attack on sovereignty from some global outreach or just uh, something indigenous to our own country. But it seems like the United States is becoming less and less what we are. And when we figure it all out, what we really are goes back to our founding fathers. Uh, that's the root. And the root, uh, the, the definition of, of, of being a radical when George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and Patrick Henry and Benjamin Franklin, they're the people that I uh, look up to as far as political leaders. Unfortunately, I don't see that around here at all. So I think what's happened and how it reflects in our Constitution is that at one time, the cream raised to the top, rose to the top, and now it's like the crud has come to the top in every every facet. So it's a time to re-examine if we want to get our country back. This is the most uh, outrageous uh, attack on our country, on us individually, on our children. And uh, Bob McElvain here is is, is a, a, a stalwart and representative and symbolic. His son uh, had perished in this. And the enforcement, the law enforcement, never did him any justice his family, or any of the victims. And then you had all these, uh, the, the first responders now are, 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 are fortunately dying off because they were told that the air was okay to breathe there, but it wasn't, it was toxic. Uh, so when I say the Constitution is under attack, it, it is the very fabric of who we are as an American. If you take that, uh, the Bill of Rights away and scrap it, like they're trying to do, and the freedoms in which they can say, okay, well, because of terrorism, now we have to give up freedom. It doesn't work that way. And Benjamin Franklin said that if you, uh, for, for security, you give up freedom, you lose both. So the only way we become secure is becoming free and maintaining our freedom. And this is an opportunity now 
with the, the grand jury petition, hopefully to circulate worldwide, and, and you're certainly helping do that, the information to go on our, our website, that's the lc4911.org, and read it yourself. You can pull up all the exhibits yourself and compare it to the, uh, the commission report if you have not read it. It's pretty boring, and uh, it's not truthful in, in my estimation whatsoever. It's an excuse, and it's, it's, a, uh, it's a decoy. And it, it, this is, is real. What we're putting out here is real. This is, this is what the truth is. And as was mentioned, it should have been done at the beginning if law enforcement wasn't compromised and was doing its job. So these are very powerful forces that compromise people at the beginning. And we have to push back. And I look at this as the beginning of the pushback. This grand jury petition, as I like to say, is like the shot heard around the world, which changed it for the American revolutionaries back in the Battle of Concord and Lexington. And, and it's done by information bits. It's not bullets flying, it's information. So please, uh, you know, if you're interested, read it, read the grand jury petition. It's online and uh, you'll be uh, empowered. It's an empowering document. And uh, if we all read it, we'll, we'll all be in the right direction. I think we can change things pretty quick, Richard, if everyone read this document. What fascinates me is this is a procedure based in the Constitution. And ultimately, it comes down to citizens because a grand jury is composed of a jury of your peers. And there's a legal process already in place to do this. And it hasn't been done for 17 years. That's the part that I find really kind of you know, curious. Uh, Mick, why don't we, in the couple, three minutes we have till the top of the hour, why don't we go through the petition itself, how you, how you decided to do this as a legal uh, vehicle to get this, this uh, inquiry launched? Sure. What we did was we started with the, the right, the legal right, that is the foundation for the petition. It's the statute I mentioned which gives us the right to uh, not just request the evidence be given to a grand jury, but essentially to demand that it be given to a grand jury. And so we explained that law as sort of a tactful reminder to the Department of Justice and what their duty is, and that was the beginning of the petition. We explained the broad powers of the grand jury at the beginning that uh, Julio described, which include, and some people don't understand, the grand jury is not just an indicting um, body. It also is an investigative body. Uh, the grand jury can issue subpoenas, uh, can grant immunity to witnesses to get their testimony. And so we explained uh, that power and the power of a special grand jury to actually issue an investigative report to a federal court and have it published, including on gov government misconduct. So we explained that at the beginning. We then went through the categories of evidence of the use of uh, explosives and incendiaries, high tech, uh, at the World Trade Center on 9-11. That included uh, a number of eyewitness testimonies from the firefighters who heard and saw the sound of explosions. It includes uh, laboratory analysis, uh, finding high tech explosive residue in the dust from the World Trade Center, seismic uh, evidence indicating there were explosions before the airplanes hit the Trade Center towers. Uh, it includes the analysis by physicists of what is called free fall or gravitational acceleration for Building 7 or part of its collapse, which is impossible without the use of explosives. So we went through that body of evidence. Um, we then... I'll tell you what, let's, let, let's pick this up on the other side. We're coming up to a break, and I don't want to shortchange any part of this. This is very important. My guest this morning, five panelists participating in and supportive of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 uh, have entered a petition to the U.S. government for the calling of a grand jury by means of the U.S. attorney in the Southern District in Manhattan, which is totally appropriate under the law and has not been done for 17 years. You're on the other side of midnight, and we shall return. There's a part of I 
I want to talk to you in the audience around the planet tonight. I want to talk to you about the kind of meta objectives of the Enterprise Mission and the Other Side of Midnight, this radio show that you're listening to right now. As you know, we have sponsored a number of important research projects through this show over the last couple, three years. We've raised money for electrogravitics, for M-Drive research. Um, we're looking very hard now at this whole orgone accumulator technology. And I want to use the Accutron, this inertial sensor, which I developed following the lead of Bruce De Palma many, many decades ago, to put the Accutron in an orgone situation, in the accumulator or in an orgone blanket, these multi-layered uh, concoctions that somehow seem to trap or densify the ether. And yes, ether is real. There is a physics of the ether. And the problem is that it all costs money. It all costs funds. So we've added a new wrinkle to the Other Side of Midnight website. Over on the left-hand side, if you go to theothersideofmidnight.com and just look over on the left, you'll see under the uh, banners which say things like home, tonight show, there's a donate button. And there's also some donate buttons in the middle of the page if you uh, happen to get the right show. But mainly over on the left, it says donate now. Normally, I don't like asking folks for money. But money is energy. Money is the ability in this culture to do things, to accomplish things. And as Father Tiso said a moment ago, there is a huge need and necessity for a game changer. We need to bring humanity back together to realize its commonality and not its differences. And that's in part what this show is trying to do with a variety of programs. And part of our research effort is trying to do with a variety of, of uh, projects there. So if you have some spare change, if you have more than spare change, go to that button. Go to the left-hand Donate Now button and click on it and send us what you can spare because communication in the 21st century costs. Everything costs, but communication more than anything costs because you have transmitters and internet connections and bright people and complexity of computers. Oh, my God, complexity of computers it all ultimately has to be paid for somehow. And as you know, you can also join Club 19.5. That's an easy way to support the show because then you get archives, you get seminars, you get this thing we're going to be doing in the next few weeks on how to look at these images. And um, there are ways you can look that will give you insights to what you're seeing that will not be found uh, on NBC or CBS or ABC. So again, go to the left-hand side of tonight's show page or the guest page. Click on the donate button and send us what you can spare because, believe me, every dollar helps. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question They'll be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live. And this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests. And I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. 
You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.